Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. This program contains themes of an adult nature. Word for Word is an in-depth look into the lives of real people, which means this episode may contain explicit accounts of real-life events, including alcohol and drug use. The language used at times may cause some offence, but has been left uncensored due to the accuracy of the story. No offence is intended, and we hope you enjoy the program. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, to over 70 community stations around the nation, this is Word for Word. Coming to you from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Welcome, family and friends, fans and fiends, to today's edition of Word for Word. I want to thank you for tuning in today. My name's Benjamin Norris, and it's simply a delight to continue to work on this show for the Joy Network, which has already featured some of the community's strongest voices. In the tradition of this ongoing program, I continue to look at powerful stories and insights into the life and lifestyle of some incredible people. Each week we will chat with those in and around our community who have inspired us, entertained us, but mostly they've made an impact on the queer community of Australia. Today's guest is an Australian who now calls America home. Growing up in regional Victoria, he then moved to Fiji and then New Zealand with his parents in his early teen years. While his older brother got the acting bug from their role on Neighbours, it was in New Zealand where he got his first break in television. However, it was working in New Zealand on programs like TVNZ's Mel's Amazing Movies and the show What Now, where he launched a career in entertainment reporting. Covering the Oscars to the Grammys, interviewing everyone from Oprah to Ben Mendelsohn, this busy Aussie found a home for himself in Los Angeles. Yet it was his own story that broke news headlines across the world when he came out as HIV undetectable earlier this year. So on World AIDS Day 2018, I would like to share with you this man's powerful story, which has been making an impact on the widest community possible, a global audience. I'd like to welcome you, and I'd like to welcome Carl Schmid to Word for Word. I'm first generation Australian. My mother is Hungarian, my father is Austrian. Carl Schmid is living his Hollywood dreams. Entertainment reporter Carl Schmidt is live at the Vanity Fair party. We just had Lady Gaga stop and have a chat with us. Take a look. I came out when I was 18 to my parents. But for 10 years, he kept a secret that he feared could ruin his career. You know, I kept it out of my professional life because there were people very close to me who said, don't talk about this. I'm a 37-year-old HIV positive man who's been paused for almost 10 years. My HIV status was not a secret. In order for me to stay undetectable and thus be untransmittable, I had to be regimented about my health. But here's the thing. I'm me. I'm just like you. I have a big heart and I want to be loved and accepted. I'm Carl Schmid and I'm HIV positive. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on your show. Everyone I spoke to who were either aware of you or I showed a picture of you to, they kind of were blushing. Do you get that a lot? No, I don't. And it's nice to hear that. I think all credit can go to my parents. (laughs) I really have nothing to do with it. 
No, I'm going to give you a success rate of 10 out of 10. Well, it, you're off to a good start by paying me compliments. This should go well. Well, you're about 8,000 miles away from me, so flirting at this particular point is safe for both of us. But I do believe I'm talking <laughs> to you in Los Angeles. For people who may not know, you've made a name for yourself internationally with doing celebrity reporting. You've done the Grammys, you've covered the Academy Awards. From doing these sorts of events, can you tell us right off the bat who has been your favourite person that you've had the chance of interviewing? Someone who I seem to, for no apparent reason, but talk to on a somewhat regular basis is Amy Adams. And she is always sweet, always nice. Uh, Even when I run into her at the gym and we fight for the same Stairmaster, she's gracious and lets me go first, which is often not the response I want because I quite frankly don't want to get on the Stairmaster. (laughs) But I think she maybe feels the same. So it's easier for me to tell you who I don't like, but that wouldn't be very professional. Well, you know, people are always interested in those two questions. I think, who's your favourite and who did you hate? Morgan Freeman with a see you next Tuesday. And that very much disappointed me. And I'm probably going to get in trouble and not ever get invited to a press junket with Morgan Freeman or a red carpet. Quite frankly, I don't care. I've always admired him and I've enjoyed his work on screen. And on three separate occasions, he's been a very unpleasant person. He's off your Christmas list. I'm brutally honest. And, you know, truth be told, it's 8 p.m. here. So I've had a glass or two of wine with my dinner. Amazing. That's what I should do to all my guests before they join the show. <laughs> I'll send you I'll send you the receipt for the bottle of wine. Look, we're going to get into a little bit more about your career and about who you are, but I think mm. it's probably a good idea for us to talk about your origins and your upbringing. You grew up in regional Victoria, sort of just outside of Melbourne. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood? I'm first generation Australian. My mother is Hungarian, my father is Austrian. They both immigrated out to Australia with their families when they were children and they met as teenagers in Ballarat. Yeah, right. And fell in love and got married and had my oldest brother, Adam, and and then my second brother, Christian. And then I came along, at which point my family was living in Geelong. So I spent the first 10 years of my life living in Geelong. My parents were in the clothing manufacturing business, and we were there. During that time, my oldest brother went off to boarding school, and Christian, my middle brother, went off to start a career in television. And then uh, my parents and I moved off to Fiji, again, for my father's work. So I I started high school in Fiji, and then after a few years in Fiji, we moved to New Zealand. And in New Zealand, I got involved in drama and and theatre and eventually in television and, and working on a Saturday morning kids' television show there called What Now?, which is really sort of where I got my first taste for working in television not just on camera, but sort of the experience behind the camera. So I'm, it, was, it was a great time because I, I started that when I was 15 and I was in this world of adult professional live television, but I was still able to be a 15-year-old. Yeah, right. And, and that went on until I was 18 and then I went off and travelled around Europe and did what a lot of Aussies and New Zealanders do and sort of had that year off. Came back to Sydney, started working in event management. I sort of thought the TV days were done. You know, I'd done that as a kid and as a teenager. That was it. I wanted to go in more into production. And somehow ended up working for Barry Humphreys as, as his personal assistant. And that is a job that took me all over the world and a progression from being his PA to sort of a, a bit of a personal on-the-road manager and 
spent some time in England working as part of his representation team. And, you know, as recently as last year, executive producing a, a series for Sky Art that Barry wrote and hosted. So it's been an interesting career. And I came to the States 10 years ago. The relationship with Barry has, has always stayed strong, but I decided to kind of break away and really get back into what I loved, which was television and making television, not just being in front of the camera, but being behind it. So yeah, Los Angeles has been my home for almost 10 years and in about a week or so. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. I, I'm lucky I get to do what I love and, and you know, it's a roller coaster career. I'm sure you know that yeah. you have great highs and then you have periods where nobody wants to talk to you and, and you're sort of a nobody. And then there's an upswing and an opportunity open. It's an amazing career. like, And it's interesting when you think about it because majority of people who watch people on television and follow people's careers who might have experienced some sort of notoriety, they think it's going to be always this flowing, amazing time. But there definitely is gaps in your career where, you know, there's highs and lows. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those lows breed deep insecurities. I know certainly for me anyway. And as I said, it, it is you are sort of surfing the waves. And when you're on top of the wave, it's great and it's amazing. But when that wave crashes and you go under, it can be soul-destroying. And I think that's why, especially in a place like Los Angeles, a lot of people come out here and they might last two or three years and then they sort of go back to where they came from or sort of the running joke is here when someone says they're into real estate, you go, uh-oh, okay, well, it didn't quite work out for you. Yeah. Um, but I have <laughs> always been incredibly stubborn and I get that, I guess, from my mother who also should be grateful that that is incredibly stubborn. But this is something I have sort of known I've always wanted to do from a very, very young age. When, when I was seven, my brother... Christian went and worked on a very popular soap opera there in Australia, and I was introduced to this sort of magical world of television, and something inside me knew that I wanted to be a part of that. Mm. I remember being a kid, and I would I had my own make-believe television show that I hosted, <laughs> down to the point of being like Johnny Young and saying goodnight Australia. Wow. What does your parents think about the ambitions of a seven-year-old who's got a taste for telly. How do they cope with that? I, you know, I call my parents lovingly and supportingly hands-off. So, you know, my, my parents went out of their way to make sure that the family had a, a good life and that we were all able to have access to a lot of the luxuries in life that they never had. But along with that came sacrifices, and some of that was sacrifices of time, especially with me. There's a six-year age gap between my brother Christian and I and an eight-year between my oldest brother Adam and I. So I think where most six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds had mum and dad around a lot, I didn't because my parents were extremely focused on the business that they'd started and it was important for them to, to work as hard as they could on that. So I became quite independent at a young age and I think they came to realise quite quickly that I could do a lot of stuff by myself and I'd gotten used to doing a lot of stuff by myself. And by them trying to step in and perhaps micromanage or control it, it, it just wasn't going to work. So I, lovingly and supportingly, hands-off is the way I sort of describe it. They encouraged me, um, my father especially, and uh, I am stubborn. And that's why I've, I've ridden the waves that we just talked about here in Los Angeles. You know, I've had two or three-year gaps where 
it's been terrible and most people throw in the towel and say, okay, time to go home and get a job doing something that, uh, that pays the bills and gives me security. Uh, for whatever reason, I just can't do that. I, I just can't let go of this bone. And it comes back to thinking that I'm a very strong believer in if, if you really want something, if you really, really want it, you will ultimately get it. But you'll only get it if you really want it. And that requires and means that you write out the bad times as much as you do the good. Do you and your brother, Christian, talk about it? I mean, for people who may not know, Christian had found some fame in things like Neighbours, was also in Scooby-Doo. In Scooby-Doo, yeah. He'll be thrilled you mentioned that. Um, <laughs> and Sea Patrol, I think more, he did, He was on, uh, I think it was Channel 9, did Sea Patrol, and he had a recurring role on Pack to the Rafters. You, you know, Christian is a huge inspiration to me, and he's a great big brother. And I've always looked up to him extremely affectionately, although as siblings do, one doesn't always show it or, or tell their siblings that. But we don't talk about it too much. I mean, we, we sort of work in different elements of the business. But, yeah, we do chat. And there have been times, certainly, where I've sought his counsel, perhaps not as directly as it may seem, but we have conversations and uh, I can put things to him. And, and he certainly has an opinion and, and one that I value very much. In fact, I spoke to him just yesterday because it was his birthday, and um, he was giving giving me some advice on social media and what kind of pictures I should be posting and shouldn't be posting, which I found quite funny. And was he saying to maybe censor some of those thirstier pictures? I posted a photo recently of myself in the shower, uh, and, and I captioned it saying, clean, squeaky clean or something. And that was the way of me illustrating there's so much stigma towards HIV positive people around the world. And there are simple little things that we can do, whether it be not just in the LGBTQ community, but, you know, amongst our heterosexual brothers and sisters out there as well. Mm. We have become, there's this bad habit of if you're inquiring about someone's sexual health status, in particular, if you're using dating apps or whatever, you know, Grindr or Tinder or any of those, we tend to, in this country, and again, I don't know if it happens in Australia, we tend to ask someone if they're clean. It's a very innocent question. And and 99.9% of the people who ask that question don't see anything negative behind it. But to somebody who is HIV positive, who faces an enormous amount of stigma, asking them if they're clean and they have to say, I'm HIV positive, in some way it implies that we're dirty. And so the point of me posting that photo on Instagram, and if you haven't checked it out, at Carl J. Schmidt on Instagram, um, like it and share it, because it's a way of saying, yeah, I, I am clean. I shower twice a day, so I'm squeaky clean. If you want to know my sexual health status or my health status as a whole, ask me, you know, that covers all STIs, but it also goes to the point that you don't ask diabetics if they're clean. I mean, HIV is a, is a chronic illness these days, as is diabetes and a number of other things. So because HIV is so sort of related in people's minds to sexual activity, which is taboo in a lot of places, there's sort of a negative connotation. So his advice to me was, he said, well, you know, you take the... the sort of naked photos, you get thousands of likes. You post something of you in a suit on a red carpet, you get 500. He said, I don't mind 
I think it's good you like the likes, but, you know, so he was just, he was looking out for me. He didn't want me to get into the habit of posting shirtless pictures on Instagram or anywhere else or half-naked. And rest assured, I, it's not something I'll be making a habit of because nobody in particular wants to see me with my clothes off. Well, look, brotherly advice or maybe a touch of jealousy, I'm having a look at this Instagram photo right now. And <laughs> without, without being a freak, I'm just going to press like. What do you think makes a good television personality, a good TV presenter? That's a really good question. When I look at you, it's, it's a matter of authenticity, but interesting to ask you that question as what you think makes a good telly presenter. Well, I think you sort of partly hit it on the, on the head there, is that I ask the questions or I go into it um, asking what I genuinely want to know. Um, and, and, I, and I think, is, I hope, and, and thank you for the compliment, that that gives a level of authenticity to what I'm doing. I get frustrated when I watch these sort of entertainment shows um, and it's all, who are you wearing? And tell us about the gossip and the scandal. And uh, I don't really care about that so much. Um, We'll get those answers out of an interview, uh, but they'll feel a lot more organic and real if I'm into the person and I'm genuinely interested in what they have to say. And so for me, it's always just been about kind of being myself and being honest about stuff. I think honesty is the key and listening is the key. Listening to what the people have to say. You, unfortunately, you can't do that all the time in the world of especially sort of red carpets and press junkets where you've got three minutes and you have to get through six questions either that your producer wants or if you're producing the pieces is the case for a lot of what I do. You know, you know that you've got to create a package for television that's going to be one minute, 20 seconds, and you need to get X amount of sound bites. So you can't always be afforded the luxury of being able to have sort of a conversation like you and I are having right now where you can really delve into it. And I think the long-form interview is hopefully something that's coming back. I mean, you had people like Michael Parkinson and Andrew Denton there in Australia and, and other people who... If you have the time to sit and have a chat and it's, and it's genuine and you, the person asking the questions really sort of gives a shit and has interest in what the other person has to say, it becomes a conversation and people listen to it. And I'll tell you, my absolute broadcast hero is Howard Stern, who I don't think many Australian audiences are familiar with, but he has been a broadcaster here in the US for 40 years and for a long time has been known as sort of this outrageous shock jock who was quite crude and crass. And he certainly was a lot of those things, especially in the 80s and, and 90s. But uh, I listen to him on a daily basis, and he is one of, if not the best interviewers in the world, to the point that I'll be driving the car and he'll have someone on from some band that I have never heard of who play music I would never listen to, and I have found myself getting to work or turning up to appointments or arriving at home and sitting in the car for another 35 minutes just to hear the end of the interview. Well, he's the masterclass of radio interviews, and I often listen to him, I probably would say, on a fortnightly basis. But I think the one thing that he has taught me, which I think you've probably walked away from as well, is its curiosity. I think if the person yeah. who is interviewing the guest whether it's they've been on The Bachelor 
or whether they're running for president. You know, if the person who's interviewing them genuinely sounds curious in the topic of conversation, the listener will follow. Absolutely, 100%. And, and, but that goes also beyond, not just in the interview format, but if you're presenting something and you yourself are interested or have taken an interest, I mean, you don't have to be an expert, but if you're genuinely interested in what you're talking about, that just comes through in your personality. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you're just tuning in, I'm chatting with Carl Schmidt, entertainment reporter in Los Angeles, for a special edition, Word for Word, World AIDS Day 2018. This is Joy 94.9. I'm curious to know, I mean, what does World AIDS Day mean to you? I think it's about remembering people who were affected. So it's kind of a remembrance day for me, but it's also about arming people with the right information. I think it's incredibly important. I think it's global and it's been around since 1988 because of its importance. And I think in 2018, there's a lot of misinformation about HIV, AIDS, and people who are living with it, people who are using PrEP. So I think that, look, the conversation is wide, it's broad, and having a particular day to highlight the stories of the people that we've lost and to talk about it as a preventative and for people who are living with it, it's massive for the LGBTI community particularly. Yeah, well, and not just the LGBTQ community, but the heterosexual community out there too. And well said, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more on, on all of this. It's a day where we can look back and, and take a moment to remember all the lives around the world that were taken far too soon but it's also a day for us to celebrate the amazing work that dedicated scientists and people in the medical professional and activists and community caregivers and support people have shown and given to get us to a place where we are in December of 2018, where someone like me can be HIV positive, completely healthy, undetectable, and present a absolute zero risk of transmitting the virus to another sexual partner. It's huge, and, and it's, it's a step forward in hopefully breaking down the dangerous, 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 and out-of-date stigma that is still so strong in all communities. Can I ask you, what year was it when you realised or you were diagnosed with your HIV status? I was diagnosed on October 2007 and somewhere between you know i would think january of that year and october 3rd uh did i you know contract and and circular and uh pick up the virus how much of your time do you sit there and think about that particular contraction like was is that something that you disconnect from to go well look there's no point well there is no point i mean uh when i was diagnosed I uh, I was at I was at work in London, and the clinic that I went to was I, my office was right on Soho Square in Soho, and the clinic was the Dean Street Clinic, which was diagonally across the square, not even a two minute walk. So I had an appointment. I excused myself from my office and I went across the square to get my finger pricked, as I had done plenty of times before, um, and. And on this particular occasion, uh, instead of a negative, it was a positive. 
and uh, I had to walk back across the square and go back into my office to finish the day. Uh, and, you know, I sort of I, I told a colleague, and there wasn't a lot of work done for the rest of the day. There, there was a lot of drinking of red wine on the roof of our building. I mean, it was a very small team that I worked with at PBJ Management in London. Um, and, and as, you know, we were all pretty much like family anyway. So we we sat and drank a lot of red wine and just sort of talked. And, and that was incredibly helpful in those first few moments, I guess, of the diagnosis. Um, the next conversation that had to be had was with my family. And at the time, my oldest brother was living in Warsaw, so I rang him, and, you know, my oldest brother, Adam, has always been the rugby-playing, guy's guy, sort of bloke of the family. Uh, and the, he immediately said, first thing tomorrow morning, go to the airport, go to the British Airways counter, there will be a plane ticket there for you, you get on a plane and you come. And it was, it was a Thursday I was diagnosed, but he was telling me to get on a plane and fly to Warsaw on the Friday. So I did that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I said, well, I'm probably going to tell mum and dad. So we rang them on Skype and my mother was like, oh, what a wonderful surprise. And look how, how lovely you two are spending a week. Why didn't you tell us you were having a weekend together? And I said, well, it wasn't really planned. I said, I have something I need to tell you. And I think my mother was hoping to hear that I'd gotten some amazing high paying job. Mm. Uh, and my grandmother was there, my mother's mother, who is Hungarian and has a very, Hungarian accent, and I, I said, well, I have to tell you something. I'm, I found out I'm HIV positive, and there was silence. And then my grandmother said, in her Hungarian accent, she said, yes, yeah, so what? And I don't. She obviously hadn't heard what I said. She thought I said something completely different, and it sort of broke the ice for a second. And and but I remember saying to them, look, this is it. So we can sit and fall apart over this, but that's not going to help me. I need to now arm myself with as much knowledge uh, and information as I can, and you need to do the same, because there's no going back. We cannot go back. It's impossible. We can only go forward. So if we need to have moments where we break down and cry, fine, but we have to keep moving forward. And from that day onwards, it has been one foot in front of the other. And I'm sure in private, you know, my parents and other members of the family have had their moments, and I've certainly had my moments. But I think it's always like the person diagnosed or with the bad news tends to often handle it better because they have to, and it's the ones around them that tend to fall apart a bit because they can't relate, they can't do anything because it's not happening to them. They have no control over it. It's not like they can fix it, you know? So I think it's harder for those around us when we're given, whether it's cancer or HIV or other, you know, devastating news. I think it's often harder for the family and friends to process it than it is for the person who's going through it. What was your relationship with the disease at that point? Yeah, I didn't really have one. You know, I didn't know anyone. Oh, no, that's not true. I knew people who were HIV positive. I didn't know anyone who had passed away from... HIV or, or had progressed onto AIDS. So I, I had a very, I'd like to think I was somewhat educated about it, but, uh, but I, it wasn't something that was at the forefront of, you know, what I really thought about or knew. 
avoided that change quickly. What about your self-protection leading up to that point? Like, what were you aware of? What practices did you have in place? Are you asking me if I was having safe sex and, and behaving myself? Well, I guess that's the thing that I want to know. I guess yeah, it's the thing that people no. want to know. Well, obviously, there were moments where I wasn't practicing. We don't say safe sex anymore, funnily enough. That terminology has been changed. It's condomless sex. So, sure. I mean, obviously, there were moments where I was having condomless sex. And you can call that reckless or you can whatever you want to call it. I mean, that's my business. And, and you know, those are the choices I made. Right. But look, I was a 20-something-year-old living in London. I had a very good job sort of working in a talent agency representing some of the biggest names in comedy. I was also starting to produce television. You know, I was, I was living a very good life as a 20-something-year-old. And along with that good life came some, you know, some very fun and wild times of alcohol consumption, drugs, partying, and it wasn't about sort of the self, there was not really, it wasn't, certainly not in my consciousness was there a self-destructive streak or anything. I was just out there living and living a little wild and large, and, and you know, we end up having, you know, every action has consequences, and you know, unfortunately, at age 27, or somewhere between 26 and 27, something I did resulted in the consequences of being diagnosed HIV positive. And, and it's, it's funny, you know, a lot of people I talk to about when they, you know, talking about when they got diagnosed and whatever, and especially with gay guys, you'd be in, it's fascinating to me how many people have said, do you know, in some respects, being diagnosed HIV positive was a relief. And this is before PrEP and everything else. Because, again, going back to the stigma and the fear that rightfully so was put in so many people from, from the 80s and early 90s, people were terrified. And the stress that if they slipped up and didn't wear a condom on, on one occasion, the anxiety and the pressure that they would have to go through for months with testing and as it was called back then, and all of this stuff, this, this horrid fear and uh, terrified inside of And so a lot of people I'd spoken to, gay men, said it was a weight off my shoulders once I found out I had it. I didn't need to have that fear anymore. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. I don't, I don't necessarily feel that was the case for me, it, it's, you know, it, but... On the flip side, trying to turn everything into a positive, by being HIV positive, I go to the doctor at least twice a year, sometimes three times a year, and I get a full checkup. Everything is done. Blood work. Everything is done. Now, I don't know too many people my age who go to the doctor and have that done two or three times a year. And so by doing that, my health is probably in a much better state than most people who don't have a chronic illness like this because they don't go to the doctor. They don't bother checking up on their health. I have to. In order for me to stay undetectable and thus be untransmittable, I have to be regimented about my health. And the positive byproduct of that is I know what's going on, and if something is going on that shouldn't be, 
we catch it. Interestingly enough, you know, when you when I look at you, with I think anyone looks at you, you are the picture of health. Probably one of the best looking blokes I think I've ever seen. So I mean, I'll stop it. Well, it's true. And <laughs> but one thing that you are doing, which is incredibly important, if you are HIV undetectable, is that you have to be quite regimented with your health. And you know, obviously, that is what you're doing, and it's a part of your life. Yeah, and look, I am by no means a saint. I still like to have the odd overindulgence of a cheeky cocktail or two. And I won't say that there haven't been times since my diagnosis that I haven't gone out and had a crazy party night. I mean, that would be lying, and it's just not true. But, yeah, it's important. And back to this messaging that that I will be talking about quite a bit when I'm down there in Australia and, and doing various bits of press and and a a panel that I'm doing with the Bobby Goldsmith Foundation in Sydney on the 18th of December, is this whole undetectable equals untransmittable, you equals you messaging, which really has only come to light in the last 12 months or so. And certainly at this year's World AIDS Conference, which I was fortunate to attend in Amsterdam in July, was really given the seal of approval by the World Health Organization, by the Centers for Disease Control here in the United States, and for a number of uh, from a number of world-leading scientists and medical professionals, that the case is that if you are undetectable, that is to say that you have your HIV virus is so suppressed in your body thanks to the medication that it is at a level of being undetectable. There is absolutely zero risk whether you're gay or straight or however you want to identify your sexuality or you know gender identity, there is zero risk of transmitting this. And this is, this is such a game-changer, Ben, for not just people living with HIV, but for all the people out there who are terrified to go and get tested because they think that this will be a death sentence and that this will, be, this will ruin them. And certainly... Um, you know, back to the point of me having some notoriety this year, you know, I kept it out of my professional life because there were people very close to me who said, don't talk about this because it will pigeonhole you and ruin you. And you know what? Maybe it has pigeonholed me. I don't think it will ruin me. And if by me being honest and talking about this, gives even someone who's listening to this, who's scared or nervous to go and get tested or who is positive that hasn't been able to tell anyone because they think that they're going to be looked down upon, treated less than, and discriminated against. If my words help one person to go, uh, okay, I'm not dirty, I'm not disgusting, I'm not sinful, and pick themselves up off the floor or perhaps just step out of the shadows a little bit into the sunshine, then then I, I don't care if I get pigeonholed. I really don't give can you do me a favour, just for anyone that's out there that doesn't know, HIV undetectable, can you give me exactly what that means? So HIV, it, to, to be undetectable, so it's a virus that attacks the white blood cells in your body. Those white blood cells do the important job of keeping your body healthy and fighting any infections. So when people talk about HIV and they talk about AIDS, most people in the civilized world who have access to medication, you don't get AIDS. AIDS isn't a disease. And, and a, I think that's a bit of a confusion out there. AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, is, is a byproduct of the HIV virus 
attacking your body. So if, if I'm treated, your body gets so weak that it then becomes extremely susceptible to cancer or pneumonia or other, you know, quite common diseases. Infection. Yeah, infection. So when you're HIV positive and you get on antiretroviral medicine, you get on meds, they help suppress the virus. They basically stop the virus in its track and don't allow it to keep attacking those white blood cells. And it pushes it down and down and down and down until it gets to a point that you really can't find any trace of the virus. Now, we still aren't at a place where it kills the virus completely, but it holds the virus so down and low that it allows us to keep living healthy and strong and productive lives without it developing to acquired immune deficiency syndrome. So to be undetectable basically means that the virus is so suppressed in your body that it's undetectable. And how quickly were you on to these medications once you were diagnosed? Well, at the, yeah, it was back then. It was a, it's sort of different to how it is now. In the UK, their way of where I was living at the time, their way of doing things was not to put you on treatment until your CD4 level until and until the viral load in your body got to a certain point because they thought, you know, we don't want to put you on this medicine if your body is doing a good enough job fighting the virus by itself. Sure. When I came to when I came to the state where it has always been the minute, minute you're diagnosed, you get on those pills. So when I came to the state, I had a little bit of a health blip scare related to HIV. The virus went up and the blood cell count went down and I got on the meds. And typically you can be anywhere between three to six months of starting medicine and to getting undetectable. But I want to make a point that's extremely important while we talk about how positive undetectable equals untransmittable is, it only works if you remain undetectable. So undetectable equals untransmittable only if you are you. That is to say, if only you are undetectable. And that goes back to what I said earlier. You have to really stick to a routine. I get up every morning at roughly the same time. I have breakfast. I take my tablet. And it's no different from someone taking their blood pressure medicine every morning or, or any other form of pill that you take on a daily basis. And that's it. If I skip the meds for two days, that can play you know, havoc with the levels in my body. So you have to be really regimented in how you take the medicine and with your relationship with your doctors and making sure that you're in good health. You equals you only if you are really you. How much of your daily activity and your day-to-day life do you spend thinking about this? Up until me disclosing my status via social media back in March, none really. I mean, it reared its head whenever I tried dating, and for a long time I just stopped. You stopped dating? I totally stopped dating because it just, it was harder to come out about HIV to a prospective partner than it was coming out as gay. And I think you'll find a lot of people who are HIV positive say the same thing. Mm. And again, it goes back to the stigma. I had drinks thrown in my face. I had someone start crying in my bed and tell me this isn't fair. Why does it always happen to them? I I mean, I could not win. It goes like this. You meet somebody, you like them. You go, let's get a drink. You go have a drink, you have a really nice time. And you say at the end of that day, I'd like to see you again. Do you want to get dinner? I'd love that. You go and have dinner. 
you know, you get on really great. Maybe there's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of a kissy, kissy, smoochy, smoochy at the end of the evening. I'd like to see you again. Great. You go on a third date. You have a really good time. Maybe it starts to heat up and get a little bit saucy. Lovely. Let's meet up again. Now you're at date number four or five. And, you know, hello, things look like they may develop into a, a much more physical and intimate situation. And you have to, at that point, any responsible person, if it's going to go down that path, has had to say, look, there's something I feel I should tell you. Now, either the person is educated and informed and goes, well, that's okay, you're undetectable, and nowadays I'm on prep, and thank you for telling me, and it doesn't change how I feel about you. But I will tell you, 88% of the time, I had people go ballistic at me. How dare you? Why wouldn't you think to tell me that? Don't you think I had a right to know that? And it's like, well, I'm telling you now. But you you should have told me. So then I would do the complete opposite. I'd meet someone, we'd sit down for a drink, be having a chat, and I'd go, now, just before we go any further, I just want to let you know, I'm HIV positive. And I would get looks like I was a crazy person. And they would say, what, you think I'm going to sleep with you? With What, you think that's this is what this is about? Or you'd get, why are you telling me that? There's I no win. And if I did... No, there was, there was absolutely no win. It, I could not win. And the anxiety and the stress that I would go through, and I guarantee you I'm not, I know I'm not alone because of the messages I get daily via social media from strangers all over the world. The anxiety and the stress that we go through in how we tell somebody, it, it just becomes to a point where you go, it's just not worth it. And that's when people start isolating, and that's when people turn to drugs, where crystal meth has had a resurgence that has always been popular, especially amongst the HIV community, because we turn to those things, and <laughs> they drop your inhibitions, and you just kind of go with it. I think when you meet um, people so- out there that treat you like that, though, I mean, that's a huge amount of fear that these people have. But it's also a Correct. really quick way of being able to determine whether or not this is someone you want to be friends with. Because for you personally, you want to have a happy life and you want to interact with people that bring the best out of you. If these people are uneducated, that usually leads to fear, which means that but, it's probably not going to be the sort of person that you're going to get a great friendship out of. Yeah, but then, unfortunately and especially in the gay community, and again, I can only really speak to my experiences here in the U.S., because of the lack of education and the fear of God that was put into people in the 80s and 90s, and and the fact that there have been no proper conversations ever since, most people behave like that, because they don't know. This, as I said, this U equals U messaging has only really started to take stride in the last 12 months. And there are still medical professionals and doctors and clinics, especially in Australia, that will not put this messaging up because they just don't buy into it. Even though the World Health Organization, (coughs) excuse me, sorry, and the CDC and everyone else is saying, look, this is fact. Of of all these studies and all these tests we've done, 37,000 studies of sex acts between men and men and 70,000 and, and, you know, I may be getting the numbers slightly off, but huge studies done where you've had an HIV-positive person and an HIV-negative person, be it two men or a heterosexual couple, 
and they have had unprotected sex, zero transmission. Not a single person has transmitted the virus if they have been undetectable. Which is exactly why you realise that World AIDS Day is so important. It's because it's arming people, everybody, with the right information, which is actually overall attacking a stigma, not a virus. That's right. And breaking down people's perceptions, which makes the road for you easier and also the road for everybody easier. It's a game changer. People who have feared that they can't have children can have children. (laughs) But what we have to do, and and Elton John is somebody who has been championing this for so many years, is that we have to embrace the fact that there are always going to be ID drug users. You're never going to get rid of them. You will never, ever stop sex workers. And you will never stop gay men, heterosexual couples, transgender from having condomless sex. You, you just can't. But what you can do is get people tested and get people on treatment. And if people get tested and people have access to treatment, and that is everyone, that is IV drug users, that is sex workers, two groups of society that we rather not talk about or treat like third-class citizens or dog shit on the sole of our shoes because it's taboo. If you get everyone tested and you get every person, if you could get every person who's HIV positive on medicine, guess what happens? The virus goes away. So this is something we can bring to an end. But governments and, and, and organizations and communities and people have to realize that being HIV positive is not a death sentence. It doesn't mean you're a disgusting, sinful, sex-crazed, you know, foolish person. It just means that we have to have this conversation, get people clued up, get them on medicine, get them tested, get them treated, and this is something that can shrink and shrink, and we have to stop being so afraid to talk about it. It's not 1984 anymore. You don't need to come at me in a hazmat suit with gloves. You don't need to handcuff me to a hospital bed. I mean, the way people were treated in the 80s and 90s in in Sydney and other parts of Australia and the world is horrific if you just do a little bit of research on this. I was looking at a lot of that, and I was terrified by these images of these people in hospital with hand with handcuffs on, and I thought, yeah. what an inhumane way to treat somebody in a time of need. Do you remember back in the late '80s? There was a commercial that ran, and oh, yeah. if you go on you if you go, you know the one I'm talking about. Oh yeah, with the, with the people, the people lined up as bowling pins. And the Grim Reaper comes with a bowling ball and bowls them all down, and there are all these syringes in it. And it's like, I think the voice of it, if you go on YouTube, you can look it up. And it's like, it's coming to get you. It doesn't kind of care who you are. I remember that ad so clearly. Go, it's on YouTube. You can still look it up. Go and look at it. It's still scary. Don't you want to know? This is what I want to know. Had that ad not been in play, what would have been the effect? It created hysteria. It needed to. Something had, I mean, look, I'm not disagreeing with the tactics that were used at the time. Something had to put the fear of God in people to make them sit up and listen, because God only knows 
governments weren't. You know, I mean, Reagan was the president in the States. He couldn't even say the word. And no one wanted to deal with it because they just considered it a gay plague. And it was something that only affected the gays, the mm. dirty, dirty gays, and their sinful sodomy sex that they would have in bathhouses. So they kind of deserved it. You know, I get why these ads were important. But as you and I have just said, they're still scary. And that is the image that most people who are in their 30s, mid-30s, early 30s, and late 20s have. That's what they have. And that's what most of their parents have and their friends and family have. I think millennials are way more tuned in and much more clued up and much more cool and realized the reality of that than, than sort of our generation. One of the things I absolutely love about you is when you talk about HIV not being a status that defines you. What a beautiful message to put out there. People have got to sit up and wake up and realise that so what, three letters and a symbol will not define me and they shouldn't define anybody else and that nobody else should be treated less than or made to feel shamed about themselves or unlovable or isolated because they happen to be HIV positive. I did this thing in Amsterdam when I went to the World AIDS Conference. I was invited to partake in the first ever positive flame torch relay, which is kind of like the Olympic torch relay through the street. And I was invited to do it along with people like Peter Staley, who uh, is an activist and one of the people who started ACT UP here in the United States with Larry Kramer. I was alongside Timothy Brown, who is the only known human being to have been cured of HIV. I was with the Nobel laureate winner who discovered the virus. We were all part of this torch relay. But, you know, and it, I get emotional even just thinking about it. There were two people in that relay who were the true heroes. A six-year-old boy and his nine-year-old brother who were born with HIV, who didn't, didn't behave recklessly who weren't doing drugs and having condomless sex. They were born with this thing. But because of the vile and disgusting stigma, these kids get ridiculed, pushed out. I mean, I just read something today about three kids who were in foster care who were expelled from a school here in the U.S. because one of them was thought to be HIV positive. These are the people who have done absolutely nothing, and they are being treated like lepers. And it still goes on. And then the fact that in many of the states in this country, I mean, look, Donald Trump's president, so it's all going to shit anyway. But I could still go to jail in states in this country if I don't disclose my HIV status before I have sex with someone, even though there's zero risk to them, zero risk. If I don't tell them I'm HIV positive, that alone, I can go to jail and be have a criminal record for the rest of my life. And that's disgusting. And it's another reason why people don't go and get tested. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to know about it. And it's all of this that has to stop. How has your life changed, would you say, since you came out publicly um, about your HIV status? It, well, it, it's been very liberating. And it has ignited a flame, as you've probably heard within me, that has made me extremely passionate to get this message out. And at the same time, it's also made me confront a huge amount of internalized stigma that I didn't even realize I had. Um, you know, I would make jokes. I thought genuinely I was kind of being 
funny and slightly shocking by saying, "Oh well, I'm you know I'm dangerous, I'm unlovable, I've, I've got age," you know, you know, and I would I would say this as a joke, but somewhere in the darkest darkest depths of my brain, there was a little bit of it chipping away at me and believing it. So having come out and spoken about it, and just hearing from so many people, I hear from people. I've heard from people in Pakistan. I've heard from people in Spain, in Argentina, in Vietnam. I mean, I get, I'm shocked that I still get messages from people all over the world saying, I haven't told anybody about this except I'm telling you and just being able to say these words to you in this message, is, it means so much to me. There's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain and a lot of misunderstanding out there. And we sort of swept the topic of HIV and AIDS under the rug and out of the psyche of conversation these days because we're like, oh, well, there's medicine for it. But the repercussions of the stigma and so damaging, are just so damaging. And I want people to know that it doesn't need to be that way. It just doesn't. Did you genuinely think when you were going to come out with this that that would affect your career? I mean, you're working for the ABC at the time? I, look, I, you never know. I mean, there have been careers that have, have crumbled because people have either been outed as gay or have come out as gay. I mean, you know, Ellen DeGeneres turned her career around, but if you remember when she did that, she was blacklisted from everywhere. Yeah. Certainly no one to my face has said, you know, we won't use you because you're HIV positive. Look, what happens in boardroom, conference rooms between television executives that I'm not privy to, I don't know, and probably better, I don't know. But but the overwhelming support that I've been shown by my wonderful colleagues at Cave Channel 7 here in Los Angeles and across the ABC and Disney family, because we're owned by Disney, has been remarkable. And all the more reason why I can say with confidence to people, you don't need to be as frightened or as alone as, as you think you are. Without sounding like a complete creep, um, do you think that you are a great advocate for this because of your appeal? Like, you are a beautiful man and you are so healthy to look at. Do you think that that makes you a really strong person to fight stigma? What I can say is that I am living my truth as far as my HIV status goes and my health. I'm being honest about it. I'm not hiding from anything about it, but I can hand on my heart sincerely say that I am being 100% authentic. And it goes back to what we said at the start of this conversation, that maybe that's why I'm good at what I do on television, because I'm authentic and I'm being honest about it and I'm being truthful. If you could summarise, like, for this day, 2018 World AIDS Day, what's your message to the queer community? My message to the queer community uh, on World AIDS Day of 2018 is never forget where we've come from. It's very easy in this day and age and the extreme privilege we have um, to take things for granted. But there were so many people, not just HIV-related, that have sacrificed so much to help us get to where we are. So we should celebrate and remember those brave people 
but we should also look ahead with a positive and optimistic outlook that HIV AIDS, if we talk about it, if we get tested, if we get treated, if we stop treating it like some dirty disease, then this is something that will and can be eradicated like many other once seemed, you know, scary illnesses out there which have now been squashed. We can do this, but we've got to talk about it and we have to stop treating people like third-class citizens out of fear and lack of understanding and knowledge. Well, Carl Schmidt, thank you so much for being able to join us on Word for Word this week. I, I'm t- I can tell you, I've just sat here and like a lot of Australians, like a lot of people around the world, I think we sometimes believe that we're armed with all the right information, but we're still open to learn more. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Word for Word is presented and produced by Ben Norris from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Word for Word is distributed nationally to over 70 radio stations across the community radio network. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy.